2: This is Deep Dish Radio, I'm Tim Powers Contemporary American comedy has many fathers The Marx Brothers, Lenny Bruce, Ernie Kovacs But possibly the most identifiable influence on the collective comedy scene And the thing that influenced everything that came after it Was Mad Magazine Launched as a comic book in 1952 Mad's flavor of satire left its fingerprints on Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons today's alt-comedy scene and pretty much everything that came after it. The man at the center of all this is a humble cartoonist named Harvey Kurtzman. Kurtzman led a complicated life, full of triumph and failure, and it's all chronicled in a new book from Fantagraphics. It's titled Harvey Kurtzman, the man who created mad and revolutionized American humor, and it's a thoroughly researched labor of love by today's guest, eisner nominated author Bill Shelley. Shelley's written over 20 books many of which deal with comics and comics fandom, and he joins me today to discuss Kurtzman and his new book, which is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and of course, if you really want the book, be sure to ask for it at your local brick-and-mortar comic book store. If they don't have it, they'll get it for you. Here's Bill Shelley. It's
0: the. Dish podcast, subscribe today and tell a friend about Deep Dish podcast with Tim Powers with Tim Powers.
2: So, with regard to Harvey. Let's talk about how you got involved. What was it about Harvey that prompted you to write the book in the first place?
0: Well, when I was a kid, uh, I stumbled across uh, several of the Mad Paperback books that reprinted his early stories that he did in the Mad Comic Book of the early 50s. Right. And and they were so outrageous that um, I was just completely taken with his talent and everything.
2: The, it, it, yeah. re- it really is amazing. What... Um, you know art speaks to different people different ways what was it about what harvey did that really highlighted it for you
0: well he um he he's, First of all, he really knew about the, the people and the characters and the politicians that he was making fun of, so he could really zero in on very specific aspects of them. Like uh, with Mickey Mouse, he said, well, let's face it, it's just really a large mouse wearing gloves. You know, it's a, <laughs> He's got three fingers on each hand. I mean, uh, Donald Duck doesn't wear pants, and uh, Pluto can't talk for some reason, but all the other animals can And I just thought that stuff was really cool when I was a kid because he really knew – he knew what he was making fun of. Not that anything he was doing was all that momentous, although he did make fun of uh, Joseph McCarthy uh, during the McCarthy era in the 50s. And uh, he did some fairly pointed political stuff, but mostly the Kurtzman Mad wasn't too political. It was mostly making fun of popular culture. It was making fun of things like uh, movies – magazine covers uh other comics yeah other comics eventually they were doing ads you know like satires of beer ads and um you know cigarette ads and things like that
2: right and uh, but uh, you know satire in the 50s was kind of a lost art you do a great job in the book kind of talking about the the culture at the time and you know there's a there's a conformity there's a um, you know the like the the leading comic of the time was Martin and Lewis, and and while funny, absolutely not uh, real political, not real subversive, to some extent, not even as smart, I think, as as what you saw coming out of Mad. And Harvey kind of rebooted everything. Would you agree with that?
0: Well, absolutely. Um, you know the Martin and Lewis thing; they were not st- satirical per se. Um, the thing is during world war 2 society in general was became very conformist because we were supporting the president against the uh, uh in a good war and then uh, after the war everybody became paranoid about communists and uh it got to be a very strange age where underneath there was all these things seething but on the surface it was leave it to beaver families it was everybody was supposed to be this perfect happy american nuclear family And uh, the reality was very different. And Mad came along and just said, hey, wait a minute, this is just ridiculous, this kind of image. And uh, and as a matter of fact, the hypocrisy of uh, of society uh, is just a perfect subject to make fun of.
2: Yeah, that's one of the things I picked up in the first third of the book when you talk about Harvey's childhood, because he got to see... The, he got to see communism from both sides of the fence. Uh, you know, you point out that he went to a, a socialist hol- a, a summer camp and was raised kind of by, uh, by some leftists, and he got to see all of that and then came of age during this, uh, you know, he became a man during the, the Cold War and the Kefauver hearings. Can you talk a little bit about how that influenced him?
0: Well, sure. Um, first of all, yes, indeed, uh, Kurtz's parents were communists. They were both Russian immigrants. And um, this was during the Depression when a lot of people were looking at the you know, 30% unemployment rate and wondering what was wrong with our system. Right. And it wasn't that outrageous when a lot of people um, were really thinking about solutions like socialism and communism. But Harvey never really liked that. What he got out of that was the idea that uh, he was pro worker rather than pro management. And uh, also, he was a very much against racism. Well, those are the two things that he got that you could say came from the leftist side. But otherwise, he really didn't like it. And when he went to that socialist summer camp, he used to say, even the magazines they gave us smelled bad. Yeah. You know, He just was not uh, a fan at all of these people that sympathized with Russia and, and, um, and all that. He was much more an American, uh, four-square American.
2: Yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, with, uh, to be, um, anti-racism in the fifties when, you know, things are starting to change. The, um, the civil rights movement is starting to pick up some steam. Major league baseball was integrated in 1947, which was a momentous occasion.
0: Oh Um, yeah.
2: I I mean, my hometown, St. Louis, Missouri, I don't think the Cardinals integrated until the early fifties. So it was a pretty remarkable thing. Um, but the other, I suppose one of the most interesting ways that you paint Harvey himself is that externally, if you met him on the street, if you encountered him at a cocktail party, you know, he aspired to kind of a Ward Cleaver kind of lifestyle inter- mm-hmm. externally, but internally, he was, if you'll pardon the pun, this madman on paper.
0: Well, he's a man of many contradictions, and that is one of them definitely. You know, he was like an iconoclast. Uh, where he, you know, want to take down the uh, the uh, authorities and the idols and and everything, and at the same time he did seek uh, the establishment symbols of success like the nice house and the financial security, and all that. So, you know, he was uh, he, there was these contradictions in him, for sure, and I think that's what makes him kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of cool how he he carried on the the Marx Brothers tradition. You know, you say very early on that he was a Marx Brothers fan, which first of all made him okay with me right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> and well,
0: then, I mean, I think isn't it isn't it agreed that Groucho Marx is just about the most brilliant comedian who ever lived? Yes,
2: with with without a doubt, he was. Uh, I you mean, know? I'm I'm speaking to you right now from about six blocks from Hollywood and Vine, mm. and uh, I know where Groucho's star is. (laughs) I I know where the theater is that they shot "You Bet Your Life." So, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that.
0: Yeah, and and you know, Groucho could just stand there and be funny. He doesn't have to do anything. And often did. (laughs) Yeah,
2: and often did. Um, Well, with regard to Harvey, you know his his early years in comics, um, really kind of became a, a. I don't want to say it became a who's who of who was in the industry but it was unavoidable starting with his early days at uh at the um the arts and music high school
0: well yeah i mean that's where his his creative life really got started it was when he went to high school and he started meeting all these talented artists and um you know it was a school specifically for people that were talented and so it was a high concentration of that, and he ran into some people that liked to do some of the same things he did, the funny cartoons and the satirical cartoons. And, I mean, he ran into uh, and uh, people like Willie Elder and Al Feldstein and, uh, uh, you know, his, his Al Jaffe. Uh, friend, Al Jaffe absolutely was went there, and, um, you know, his best friend, Harry Chester, went there, who worked with him um, all through his career. And Ed Fisher, and a lot of people who he worked with later, and in fact, even at that point in his life, he had aspirations to become a media mogul, and he wanted to publish his own magazine. He was fantasizing even then about bringing these people together in a magazine that he would edit.
2: But you know, he put in, um, he put in his thousand hours, which is something that comedians and musicians today say. You know, the Beatles got to be where they were because they workshopped in Hamburg. You know, fifteen hours a day. You oh, know, yeah.
0: I mean, they they played you know so many shows; it's just crazy,
2: right? And so, as as he as he's in high school and as he goes through the the later end of the golden age of comics, after he gets out of the army, he encounters people like uh, like Gil Kane, like Stan mm-hmm. Lee, like uh, like Bill Gaines and and Max mm-hmm. Gaines, and mm-hmm. um, his reaction to each of those people is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about? How uh, about Harvey's relationship with Bill and Max? Both
0: with Bill Gaines, yeah. Well, he didn't. He didn't have a re- relationship with Max Gaines, right? Max, you know. But um, certainly, uh, well, let's start with Stan Lee. I mean, after he got out of the uh, the army, you know, he he had to find work, and he just fell back into the comic book type of thing he was doing before the war as a boy almost. And uh, the first place he went was. Uh, to the Timely Comics office where Stanley was working. And of course, Timely is now Marvel. Right. And he said that, that he just got a really good vibe from Stan. And Stan basically was so busy, he basically was able to give Harvey carte blanche to do these fillers called, Hey, look. And Kurtzman, the key thing in Kurtzman's career is that when he had creative freedom, he did his best work. Yep. He absolutely. It made a huge difference in the quality of what he did and so on. And Hey Look was just this brilliant one-page, ridiculous, silly feature and and the people in the timely offices started noticing it. Al Jaffe came over and started looking at it going, hey guys, you know, Mike Sikowski, uh, different people in that office would start paying attention to this little nebbish Harvey Kurtzman just because his work was so different and so funny. And Yet when he went to meet Bill Gaines, who had inherited the EC Comics uh, uh, shop from his father, who was killed suddenly, right. um, you know, it, he was—he was a. Uh, there was really no place for him at EC. He walked in the door thinking they were educational comics, and maybe he'd do some sort of educational comic book work. And they just said, "No, we're entertainment, entertainment comics now, and we think your hey look strips are funny, but we don't have any place for you here." And so, but Gaines, Gaines was a very exceptional guy because he loved talent and he had an eye for recognizing talent. And you can see the incredible people he pulled together at EC there, Wally Wood, Al Williamson, and so on. Uh, And he recognized the quality of what Harvey could do. So he said, now, wait a minute, maybe we could do some kind of a tryout here. They gave him that strip about uh, the the uh, ignorant ignorant cowboy who happened to contract syphilis. It was an educational <laughs> strip, yep. not being published by EC, but by uh, Gaines's brother David Gaines, or uncle, excuse me. Right, and he, but but Harvey did this strip and it showed that he could do something more realistic and that's when Gaines said okay we'll give you a horror script and we'll see what you can do and suddenly because Gaines was open minded enough to give him a chance and you know how many places give you a chance they want to see what you can you can deliver the work right away they gave him that chance and he just knocked their socks off with the uh, his tryout strip which was called House of Horror and he his comics his stories appeared in the very first horror comic from EC, true horror comic, and the very first science fiction comic, Vault of Horror and Weird Science. And so he was there at the at the very beginning of the EC new trend, which, of course, is one of the most uh, uh, influential and important comic book trends in history.
2: No question about it. No question about it. And it, it's interesting, the, the parallel, uh, that as you were telling the story, I'm thinking about Jack Davis, who, you know, now... 60 years later you don't think of necessarily as a straight story illustrator you think of those those great movie posters and and uh you know all the great uh humorous work that he's done yeah but but jack davis's horror and science fiction were great stories as well so you know good on gains for for noticing the the talent
0: yeah Uh, absolutely and and the thing about uh davis is his work was so ingratiating it was so uh, appealing to the eye because he had such a good ink technique and that he could and he could really do both um just like Kurtzman could do both humor and serious
2: yeah it's it's really uh really interesting um another artist that um that harvey came in contact with was gil kane and i thought their their um the, the story between those two was kind of interesting can you Can you share a little bit about that?
0: Well, sure, sure. um this is before World War II. when Harvey uh, got out of high school, he was only sixteen, so he had some time before he was going to be drafted because the war was going on, and so he had to make money and he found a job working in a little comic book studio run by a guy who hired a little uh, fledgling artists who he could pay very little to do these comic book stories that he would package and then sell to publishers. You know, an entire comic book, he'd deliver 64 pages, and then they would publish it. And um, Harvey found a job in this shop, and one day he a guy named Gil Kane came in, and Gil Kane was about the same age as Harvey, and he was actually... Uh, uh, had a similar background, Jewish background and everything, but he... He wanted to be a comic book artist, but Kane didn't even know how to draw at all at that point. And he would look at what Harvey was doing, and Harvey would be sitting at the drawing board and just eating a sandwich and just creating panel after panel after panel of these superhero stories. And it wasn't very good work at all, but he had the ability to tell a story. He had the ability to know how to place the figures and how to. Do it, and get, Kane would just sit there and go. I just you just watch him doing it. It was unnerving, yeah. Because uh, I, you know, not, not, Kane was was nowhere near what Harvey was doing when Harvey was 17, and they they uh, didn't work together very long because I think because basically because Kane really couldn't uh, cut the mustard at that point.
2: Sure.
0: Uh, but but uh, they became great friends later, and and um, same with uh, Will Eisner. Um, uh, Harvey and Will Eisner. Uh, became friends and they, they all through their later careers, you know, they did stuff together and the same with Gil. Uh, They, they both developed uh, strong friendships with Harvey.
2: Yeah. It's, he seemed, uh, he seemed like somebody that uh, anybody with a sense of humor would want to be, want to be friends with. Um, Let's talk about your personal journey. How did you discover, uh, when did you become aware of the fact that Harvey Kurtzman was a, was a creator?
0: Well, the first time I heard his name was when I used to sneak Playboys from my older brother in the sixties. <laughs> I mean, didn't didn't we all do that? Oh yeah. And uh, his name was on Little Annie Fanny, right. um, and so immediately I knew that this is a guy who did funny comic strips and sexy comic strips. And then as I got a little – and at that same time, I got involved in this comic fandom movement that was happening in the 60s where people who liked comics were saying, "No, wait a minute, these aren't just for kids. And they started finding each other and having clubs and meetings and fanzines, and I was involved in all that. And then in reading some of these amateur fanzines of the 60s, I learned that he had done – these war stories for EC for comics called Two Fisted Com Two Fisted Tales and Frontline Combat, right. and that these stories were really sophisticated storytelling techniques and were innovative. They were anti-war during the Korean War of all things. Sure, and so that's when I learned. Oh wait a minute, Harvey Kurtzman did Little Annie Fanny, and then he did these serious war things. And then people would say, Well, of course you know he started Mad. I went really. So I, I connected it with those mad paperbacks and I suddenly put all the pieces together and I realized this guy is really someone I admire and I love his work. So I followed that work for many years and I've written, you know, over 20 books, most of them about comics and comics history. And I was sitting in my publisher's office, Gary Groth of Fantagraphics, uh, not uh, about exactly four years ago. And we were Discussing what I could do next, and I'd done a couple of biographies. And he said, "Well, what would you think of Kurtzman?" And I, it kind of rocked me back in my chair. And I went, "Oh my God, I would love to do that, but that'd be a huge project. I mean, what a challenge!" And no he kidding. Said, well, I think he said, "Bill, I, I, you know, if you think you can do it." I said, I, "He said I believe in you. If you think you can get the access to the material, and um, so that's how it began. And so I had the opportunity to." to find out and to tell his story, the story of someone who i had admired since I was a teenager.
2: And you, you uncovered a lot of great things. Your story's not too different from my own. I, uh, I used to sneak, uh, well, I'm 46. So in the, early se- mid 70s i used to sneak my uh my uncle's mad magazines and just devoured them you know they used yeah. to have stacks of them and i and really got influenced by mad but you know harvey was long gone by then and i was yeah. a marvel zombie at the time too and loved everything yeah. that that stan put out i was 11 years old and at the time uh marvel had put out a teen magazine called pizzazz right And about the time that it got national distribution, they started putting Hey Look pages in there. And that was my favorite part of Pizzazz, which essentially was just Tiger Beat, really, with kind of a Marvel flair to it. But they threw in Hey Look, and I went, this is really interesting. They're different. Yeah. And I saw the byline and found myself at the library, you know, within the next few weeks, looking up everything I could find on this guy. And I found uh, the the Gaines biography, and I found... um, you know the the great tomes of the '70s about comics history because there were only like four or five books at the time written about right, about comic books, yeah. and uh, and really started to go down that rabbit hole. So it was really kind of cool to to read this book finally, uh, you know, 35 years later, and go, okay, now I get a much bigger picture of everything. As you did your research on this, and granted, you've been a fan for years, but as you as you went down the rabbit hole, did you discover anything okay. new? anything kind of interesting that I don't want to say would, would spawn a sequel, but maybe uh, another trajectory you would want to go.
0: Well, um, you know, that's an interesting question. Certainly. Um, one of the things that interested me were the uh, comedians in the fifties that, uh, were involved, uh, that were sort of starting the new comedy at that time. Um, you know, people like Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul and, and, um, Ernie Kovacs and uh, Woody Allen and those people. And, you know, I, I am very interested in the history of stand-up comedy and com- those comedians. Sure. So I could, and, and since Kurtzman used those comedians in Matt, he, he had them write pieces when Mad became a magazine in 1955. Right. He had them write pieces for it. And they were great admirers uh, of him. In fact, Lenny Bruce was going to do something for Kurtzman magazine at one point it never happened but you know it's it's a, a tantalizing little footnote in Harvey's career sure but um, uh, Ernie Kovacs contributed to Mad and uh, so you know maybe there could be some kind of a I could see. G- somehow writing a, a book about uh, the new comedians. There have been other books, though, so it would have to be from a different angle for sure.
2: Yep, I'm actually holding one in my hand, and I thought, and with all due respect to your book, I thought it was the the missing companion to a fantastic book, if you don't mind, uh, called Seriously Funny by Gerald Noshman, who goes through uh, biographies of guys like Mort Saul and Sid Caesar and Tom Lair and Kovacs yeah. and... Um, you know, the, that generation of comedy, which to the comics that are coming up now, my generation, uh, and even a little bit younger, they're almost overlooked. And, uh, you know, the, when I read, uh, seriously funny, I thought, well, Matt is completely missing from this book. What a great, what a great one, two punch. However, uh, I'm sure you can put your own spin on, on that era of comedy and really make something out of it. I would love to see that.
0: Well, the thing about it is is to write any kind of a book like this, to make it worthwhile, what you have to do is have access to material that really hasn't been known before. And in this case, on the Kurtzman book, I got access to Harvey Kurtzman's archives and archival papers that just added so much to... uh, uh, the book of uh, things that have never been known before, right. um, you know, uh, and even things like the FBI investigation of his war comics because they were they were you know J Edgar Hoover suspected that they were uh, anti-American uh-huh. because maybe that maybe they were trying to convince people st- soldiers not to obey authority or something which was completely ridiculous and they they dropped it once they looked into it but you know things like uh, his correspondence that. This material became available to me, and so therefore you can write a book um, uh, if you have access to the material. So that's always going to be a, a consideration um, when I think of a project is, you know, what am I going to bring to the table that no one has done before? So if I were going to do a book on comedians, it would have to be after I found some way to give it, uh, you know, bring in some new unknown material
2: Sure.
0: for sure. But I wanted what I wanted to do was tell a compelling story of a guy who basically, with his, because he was such a creative genius and innovator, he really changed the world. He changed American humor uh, by bringing in this kind of humor uh, in the 50s, which uh, then spread to comedians and um, other magazines, and now then Saturday Night Live, of course, and so forth. Right. Um, his influence, His influence is really, his creative DNA is everywhere.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, that was actually my next question was going to be where do you see Harvey's influence today? Because without what Harvey did with Mad and the 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 humor mags that came after that, there wouldn't there wouldn't be George Carlin and Richard Pryor, and consequently there wouldn't be um, uh, there wouldn't be Saturday Night Live. Your forward by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python, what you know really put a. a it not only wet your appetite for the book, but put a really good bow on it, too, because, you know, what, what, what greater blessing can
0: you have? Well, yeah. And, and, and also, even beyond the comedy thing, Tim, there's the social uh, effect. You know, some people really feel like mad was the beginning of the counterculture, was the beginning of the idea that we're not just going to accept what the establishment wants us to be. We're going to think for ourselves. And that was really – that inculcated, you know, millions of kids. I mean, this was going out to young kids, and not only in cities, but MAD, as a comic book, went under the radar and went to every little town in Hamlet, every little newsstand. Kids – every kid could get his hands on MAD. And it was sort of like uh, – it was sort of like an infection, <laughs> as, as, as Terry Gilliam says. But it 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 really uh, its effects just can't be uh, overstated, and even on like I said the counter- counterculture, or some people think you know for example that the anti-war protests, in some fashion, were a result of Mad, uh, at least in just in some way. I'm not saying entirely, sure. But but as as Mad you know picked up the 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 mood of the time and really incited the mood of the time in some ways, or clarified the mood you know. And uh, you know, teachers hated Mad, and parents hated Mad, and that was just great.
2: <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> so we, they we, did we, through we... the seventies and eighties too. I can I can assure you of that.
0: Absolutely, and you know, kids love things that their parents hate. You know, and uh, but just the idea that they can think for themselves, and it's not something their parents would would want them to maybe read. I think that that alone, the idea that you can think for yourself, I think, is really great.
2: Yeah, I got that even more with because uh, I I found some uh, I found humbug doing some uh, because you wet my appetite while I was reading the book. And I'm like, you know, I've never read Humbug. So I went and and found some. And I got that. I got that think for yourself thing even more than I got from the first, you know, 10, 15 uh, issues of Mad, the comic. Yeah. uh, Yeah.
0: And Humbug, Humbug, though, is very much about 1957 and 1958 when it came out. Right. You know, it is about the TV shows of that era and the politicians of that time. So it is a little harder to go back to for someone that isn't steeped in the culture of the late fifties to understand a lot of the references and things like that. But if you, you know, if you do understand those references, I really think Humbug is just really brilliant you know, from first to last.
2: No question, absolutely no question. Um, so I suppose we'll wrap it up with a couple more questions, but what do you think Harvey would think of the, of the comedy scene today, comedy central and the, the comedy movies that are out right now? And, you know, what would he think of his comedic grandchildren?
0: Well, I know he would just absolutely love John Stewart. It's too bad. Of course, John Stewart's leaving and, and Stephen Colbert as well. Sure. But he, the idea that you could use humor to skewer politicians (laughs) Combined with Harvey, Harvey was a news junkie. So you can just see how he would have loved Jon Stewart. Sure. Because, you know, the daily, following the news every day and using satire to uh, uh, criticize, really. Mm -hmm. Because satire is a form of criticism. But as far as uh, Comedy Central... Um, I don't know that I don't know exactly where he would feel about that. I, I don't know as much about his preferences for his personal entertainment, like what he would like, what kind of TV shows he liked right. that much. Not too aware if he was a big fan of uh, of stand up or what. Um, but um, definitely uh, anything that's iconoclastic, anything that gives the finger to the man, he would like.
2: So he. Didn't, he... Uh, you know i have a feeling he'd be of two minds with south park he would see it for <laughs> you know he he would see it for the for the yeah. social satire that he is and probably roll his eyes at a couple of the fart jokes
0: well you know the thing is he was of a generation he was that generation so he absolutely some of the stuff that came along later you know um uh, was just went further than he would have been comfortable with but that's only a function of the time that he lived if he'd if Harvey Kirsten's spirit had come along later, I know he would have loved those things too, just like we do. It's just that, you know, his day in his day, you know, you could only, uh, you could, you know, fuck was not something you used in. Uh, you probably have to bleep me on that. I don't, uh, as, as a matter of fact, used, which is great. Oh, Thank okay. you, Harvey. Is <laughs> uh, not something that you would use uh, in entertainment, but it was certainly part of his daily vocabulary. <laughs> 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 and And such know, was Brad, the I know that for a fact, yeah,
2: such was the dichotomy of the fifties, you know it's uh yeah, yeah, and, and that absolutely. generation, yeah, well, uh, other than that i mean the the book is a is a fascinating read, start to end, and if you're a if you're a fan of uh if you're a fan of present day comedy and you're a fan of the comedy of the of the, of the generation and a fan of the the comics medium, and if you 're not, you have no business listening to my show. Um,
0: <laughs> this is a fan. Or if you're if you're ever a fan of mad you know um, definitely this book should interest you because there's an awful lot about mad and other aspects of his life but uh, uh, the mad story is his that's his crowning story for sure
2: you find me an american male between 65 and 11 who's not a fan of mad magazine you'd be hard pressed there you, there you go and uh, and that's fantastic bill anything else you want the world to know about this uh about this book
0: I guess the only other thing I'd like to say, again, is that even though it's, you know, we talk about it being 642 pages, there's, you know, over 250 illustrations and photos. There's, it, the, the print is not small. It's, an, it's, not, it's a very readable book. It's not a scary book to read. Very, so don't be yes. intimidated. If you're thinking about this book, don't think, oh, gee, that's, that's going to be a heavy book. It's not. It's a, it was meant to be an entertaining You know, it it, it's in depth, but it's entertaining and readable. I guess that's what I'd like people to know.
2: Not only that, but the uh, the artwork that you got from the archives uh, is is typically of Fantagraphics reprinted so beautifully. um, You know that it's really it's it's worth it's worth your dollars. And uh, really cool. appreciate it, Bill. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I hope that we get a chance to to shake hands one of these days. And I hope we rub elbows at a convention. And the next time, uh, the next time, the next book comes out, I hope you'll uh, you'll give us a call.
0: Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me on.